If you've got a Bible, why don't you go ahead and open it to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. If you didn't bring one, there should be one in the pew there. And um, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is on 1787 or 1786. But it starts on 85, 1785. Um, if you're new, we're going through this book called 1 Corinthians in the Bible. It's a letter the Apostle Paul wrote to a church in Greece, in Corinth. And they were people who believed in Jesus, and they were having some trouble figuring out exactly what it meant to follow him with their lives. They were having a little trouble with that um, in their culture. And so we're studying this book, trying to learn some of the same stuff they needed to learn. And, um, so yeah. So, I'm going to start in verse 12 in chapter 12. The body is a unit. Though it is made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Now the body is not made up of one part, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part— where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable, we treat with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honor to the parts that lacked it so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And in the church, God has appointed first of all apostles— Second, prophets. Third, teachers. Then workers of miracles. Also those having gifts of healing. Those able to help others. Those with gifts of administration. And those speaking in different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? But eagerly desire the greater gifts. Last week, when we talked about the first half of this chapter, um, we talked about the giver of spiritual gifts, and really the giver of all true spirituality, the Holy Spirit, right? And this week, the second half of this chapter is really about the context of spiritual gifts, and really the context of all true spirituality, that is the body of Christ. And that's one of the things that is important about that, is that what that means is, from the, from the very start of this passage, 
it assumes something that almost all other spiritualities in the, model, in the modern world don't assume. And that is that true spirituality is a fundamentally social thing. It's interpersonal. Between the person of God and us, and between each other. That's why in the very next chapter, chapter 13, which everybody loves to read at weddings, which has nothing to do with weddings, but is perfectly well applied to weddings, is that the greatest of these things, that is the greatest outworking of spirituality is what? Faith, hope, and love, and the greatest one is what? Love. A lot of modern spiritualities don't have, don't have that sense at all. Spirituality is what we do instead of actions. Spirituality is by definition not an action. It's something that's inside of you and between you and the ultimate and so forth. And a lot of people imagine spirituality and morality not to be related to each other. That's how the Greeks thought. The people who Paul wrote this book to. The idea of morality and the idea of, of worshiping the gods were not the same thing. The gods weren't moral, right? I mean, think about it. All the pagan gods, they weren't moral. Why would you think morality and spirituality had anything to do with each other? They don't. And in modern times, this is pretty much the, the case too. People who call themselves de- devoutly spiritual, if you try to talk to them about the relationship of their spirituality and their morality, they get confused. What are you talking about? These two don't have anything to do with each other. But, and that's one of the reasons why Christians can never really get away from talking about morality when we talk about spirituality. It's not because we're some kind of nasty moralist that wants to judge everybody, but because we believe God has designed spirituality to be fundamentally social— you can't get away from the fact that how we relate to each other is deeply embedded in our spirituality and therefore morality. Christian, Christians can't talk about spirituality without talking about morality because, we, because of this fundamental idea that spirituality is based in or comes out in love. Love is social. Love acts on the basis of something that's true and therefore there are standards of love, i.e. morals. Now, before we get going here, let's, let's play a game. Let's play the, what do these diseases have in common game? Right? Doctors and nurses can't participate. What do these six diseases have in common? Rheumatoid arthritis, type 1 diabetes, lupus, inflammatory bowel disease, silly to say, but no fun to have. Um, the next one is apparently pronounced Shrogan syndrome and multiple sclerosis. What do they have in common? They're not contagious. That's actually, I think, true. But the reason why they're in this game is because they are all what's called autoimmune diseases, which Andrew Redmond mouthed, as I said. That is, they are not diseases that come from the outside. They are conditions in which your own immune system is attacking you. And one of the reasons why I feel like these, in a sense, are, are, these diseases are more tragic than a lot of others is because of their irony. It's because of their reversal of identity. There's something about, I think, autoimmune diseases where when we, we realize people's bodies are attacking their own bodies, it, it messes with us even more than when somebody gets sick from something from the outside, right? Like when people get MS or people get rheumatoid arthritis it's, and it's their own body attacking them, it, it, it does something to me where I, I'm like, it's not supposed to be that way. That's not the, the way the body's supposed to work. All of these are potential stealing conditions. Conditions. The very system in your body that's meant to maximize your potential by keeping you healthy is the very one that minimizes your potential, potential by making you sick. And the reason that this is important is because since it's true, since this passage argues that Christ's people, that our identity is we are a body, we are a vital living organism— 
that we're, we're supposed to be alive. We are properly designed. We're a body that is inseparable. Its parts and systems are inseparable from one another. And we're a body that is intentionally diverse and full of variation. That what happens when pride enters is that it brings to that body an autoimmune disease. The autoimmune diseases of superiority and inferiority that rack the spiritual body of Christ with diseases as powerful as any of these six. That are in certain ways even, you could even say in some ways, spiritually lethal. Or they slowly decay us over time. Or like rheumatoid arthritis, they they break down our ability to do things. Or they weaken us entirely. And essentially that's what this passage is arguing. When we don't understand and we don't fully embrace our identity as the body of Christ. We don't realize what that means. When we don't understand what God, the Holy Spirit, has made us together when we have come to Christ and we've been, when Christ has been applied, we will all fall into the patterns of pride. And we will all contribute to and be part of the autoimmune diseases destroying the body of Christ and holding her back from her full redemptive potential. It'll hold her back from her redemptive potential in each of our individual lives. The body of Christ meant to build you up will not build you up the way God intended for you to build up, be built up. And the body of Christ as a whole will not be built up the way we are meant to be built up. And the redemptive effect on the body of Christ in the whole world will not be what it's intended to be. Because we will have a potential stealing autoimmune disease running through our system. And that was what Paul was concerned about when he looked at the spirituality of these people and he cared about them, he loved them, and he wanted them to, to be who Christ had made them to be and he knew that that's what they were meant to be and that's what God, God's purpose for them was. He, he, wanted, he wanted this immune disease healed. And so he, he looked at him and he said, listen, um, we, have got, we have got to cure this disease. And this disease is from pride. And one of the things that you'll notice is that his tactic was not to humiliate them. There are a couple places he takes some pretty good shots in this book. But one of the things we need to realize is that um, the, the, the medicine that pride requires is actually not humiliation. Humiliation does not create humility. That's something that might be cheeky enough to even write down, but don't tweet it because then everybody will do it and it'll just be cliche. Humiliation does not create humility. The the biblical cure of pride and the biblical source of humility is truth. It's truth. Humility is a right understanding of who we are. It's, it's when the delusion of pride and the culpable ignorance that comes from pride goes away and we see ourselves and we see the world the way it really is. And so what Paul is trying to impart to these folks is not a scolding, is not a humiliation, is not an outright attack on the fact that they exist. He's, he wants them to see the truth of their identity. And that's why this passage is fundamentally transferable to all of us. Because that's exactly what God the Holy Spirit wants for you and I. 
He wants us to see our identity in him the way it truly is. And he wants that to have the effect of, the hum- of humility and self-forgetfulness so that it will produce mutual concern and it will produce a desire to have what he has for us rather than the autoimmune diseases of inferiority and pride running through the church, twisting our identities and breaking us down rather than building us up. So I want to talk for a few minutes about the two reactions that pride brings against God's plan for a unified body, for a body that's totally diverse, but yet is one. And if you want to hear the 35-minute introduction, just listen to, go online and listen to last hour's sermon, okay? And we'll have those people come and listen to this one. Everybody can have 75 minutes of teaching, okay? Um, So the, the first reaction pride has against God's plan for a unified, vital body is inferiority. That's the first thing in this passage, isn't it? And Here's the thing we got to look at about inferiority. The kind of inferiority talked about here is one that really comes from a passive kind of envy. Look at the passage. Now the body is not made up of one part, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. You see, what you and I, particularly in our culture, have, we, have, we, t- we tend to have a tendency to be soft on inferiority. When people feel inferior, we want to be sympathetic to them, right? We don't want to be like, you arrogant son of a, right? We want, oh, you poor thing, we want to give them a hug, we want to make them feel better, we don't want to humiliate them, Right? But you see, the part of the problem here is is that that's not actually the medicine they require, and that's not actually how the Bible tends to treat people who have inferiority issues like this. Now, it's one thing if everybody's just beat the stew out of them, they had a horrible dad or mom, or like they, I mean, they really have been crushed, and you need to be a little bit soft before you feed them the medicine that they need. But even then, you're going to be really, really kind, but they can't get better until you start feeding them truth. So you've got to be real nice and very gracious while you do that, and that's why grace and truth together is a very good mechanism for thinking about how we minister to people. But you, but you can't—and so when you look throughout the Bible at people who have these inferiority issues, oftentimes it's not like, oh, you poor dear. It's—listen, you're wrong, <laughs> right? I mean, here, this objection is just invalidated. He goes, listen, you can say because you're not a hand or whatever that you're not part of the body, but guess what, buddy? You are what you are. When you became a Christian, you were baptized into the Spirit, and you were given one spirit to drink just like everybody else, and you belong to Christ, and you became part of the united body as united as he is united. Listen, you got an identity. You can't get out of that. You can't whine about this. You can't be like, well, I'm not a foot, or I'm not a hand, or I'm not an eye, or I'm not an ear. No, you're, you are what you are. There's no, there's no getting out of that. You are part of the body of Christ, period. And if you're frustrated that you're not another part of it, that really isn't God's fault, nor his problem. And it's, it's really an expression of pride in the form of envy that produces the phenomenon of the feeling of inferiority. And, th- and here's why inferiority in some ways is, is more deadly than, pr- than superior pride. Because when we feel inferior, we tend to be passive and feel like a victim, so we're not actively working on the problem. We feel like it's somebody else's responsibility to do something for us. If you're just straight arrogant, at least you think everything is your job. Right? That's not much comfort. Right? 
The Bible says everywhere that pride is divinely unattractive. That God finds humility divinely attractive and pride divinely unattractive. And so there's not very many comforts with the idea of pride. But one way of comfort in relationship to inferiority is at least it's active. Whereas inferiority has a sense of passivity to it that causes you to feel like a victim and feel like somebody else should be doing something for you. And if it's a relationship to God, God should be doing something. But really what you're just doing is stewing in envious pride. And what is God going to do with that? God only has one action of medicine that you require, and that's confrontation. And that's exactly the opposite state of mind of reception you're going to be in. You're not going to be in a state of mind receptive to confrontation that is truth. You're going to be waiting for him to comfort you and looking around. Where is the comfort coming from? When is he going to comfort me? When is he going to say he was really wrong and he's going to give me more? Or the thing that I really desire. And that's not the message that's out there. So you're looking for green, but it's really blue. Right? And so it's important to recognize that in Scripture— The self-righteous sense of envious inferiority is not met with adulation. Think about, if you want another example of this, think about Matthew 25, the story of the of the servants with the talents, right? One guy gets a big pile of money with like, you know, let's say, let's say a million dollars, ten hundred thousands, right? Another guy gets like five hundred thousand dollars. And he he like the lowest lowest investor guy that he entrusted money, he gets like a hundred K, right? And this guy goes and buries it, right? And so and so that when the master comes back, who gets in trouble? The bottom guy, right? The least gifted, least talented, least resources entrusted to him guy. This is the guy that gets thrown into hell at the end of the story, right? I mean, what gives with that? That's just mean, right? Shouldn't the guy in charge get in trouble? I mean, the big guy should have gotten in trouble. Like the, the big man should go down, not the little guy. Why is that story like that? Well, here's why. The little guy didn't try and fail, did he? Because if you read that passage in Matthew 25, he says, he says, here's how I know you're, you're lazy and wicked to that guy, to the poor guy. Here's how I know you're lazy and wicked. Because you didn't even take the money to the bank. You didn't even take the money to the bank. I gave you this huge pile of money, and you just buried it. You could have taken it to the bank and gotten interest. That's the minimum possible effort. And you didn't even do that. So don't give me this, I'm hard, and I'm mean, and I reap where I didn't sow, and I go and take things that aren't mine, and I'm some nasty capitalist, and I'm going to come down, and, I, and you're this poor little person, oh my. He's like, we could have had that conversation if you'd taken the money to the bank, but you didn't. And you proved that you were a wicked, lazy servant. Now that's a little, that's a little stirring, isn't it? But why? Well, who, who are the ones among us most likely to say, well, what does it matter if I do anything? Is it the most gifted? The people with the most resources? The most talents? Are those the people that need that parable? Maybe, but most of those people are pretty self-assured. They're just going to go for it. I mean, what, who knows, right? There's so, there's so many of us, those of us with an envious sense of inferiority, that will sit on the sidelines and give ourselves a pass. Because God didn't give us all that much. But if God had given us more, we would have done something. But he didn't. And we're stuck with this, and what are we going to do, right? Not that much? You see, that's not God's attitude. But you see, in order to experience the graciousness of this, our first step has to be a response to truth. Not a further descent into anger and envy and inferiority and protection and don't be mean to me. We have to open ourselves to the truth to let God say, listen, you are exactly 
where I want you to be. You have exactly the resources I wanted to give you. And you're, you, the, the role that you're meant to play is right next to you for you to do. And you need to first start with the first principle of all things, and that is that God rules all things well and is generous. You see, inferiority and superiority have the same fundamental issue of pride. They do not believe that God rules well, they don't believe in the goodness of his sovereignty, and they don't believe that God is really generous to me. Right? Um, there's a story from the 1700s before John Wesley got converted, where Peter Bowler was trying to lead John Wesley to Christ. And, of course, Wesley was a, a Anglican clergyman at the time. But Peter Bowler was still trying to lead him to Christ. And he said, he said, John, do you believe that Jesus is the Savior? And John Wesley said, I believe that Jesus Christ died for the sins of the world. And Peter Bowler goes, yeah, but do you believe that he died for your sins? That is— yeah, okay, theologically, you believe that God was generous. He died for the sins of the whole world. But do you actually believe that God is generous to you? In your experiences, in your life, in your feelings, in your emotive life spiritually, do you actually believe? Do you look in your life and say, God has been so generous. He has been so sovereignly good and so benevolent. God has been so generous to me. That is not, I submit, the case, the case to you for most Christians. Most Christians can pass the theological question, is God good? Check yes. Is God benevolent? Check yes. But when it comes right down to our emotional lives, do I believe God has been generous, that his sovereignty has been good to me, that he rules all things well, and he rules and he is generous to me well? And I am the one that is ungenerous, and I am the one who rules my life badly. Which is the opposite of the secular impulse, right? We are the scientific people who work everything and manage things well, and if God was there, he would have created things a whole lot better than he did. The secular impulse happens to be also the impulse of pride. And it will lead us back and forth between superiority and inferiority. It will, it will cause us to believe that God is not benevolent and he is not beautifully sovereign. And the first step to getting out of that is faith and repentance. Repenting of the fact that we believe we are good and sovereign and that not, God is not a good sovereign and believing again or for the first time that God is benevolent and he is providential. And when you believe that, there's a couple things that are going to happen. The first is, you will start to have compassion on the, peop the very people you envy. You see, one of the problems with envy is, we don't have compassion for the people that we're envious of. Do you, no do you notice that? You, you may have compassion for the poor guy down the street, right? But do you have compassion for the governor or the president? Right? So you see, you see one of the things that envy creates is it, it creates an anger and a sense of of righteousness toward the people who have big jobs. And you see, those people have the same problem as you have. Their job is bigger than they are. They don't really know how to get it all done. They don't really, I mean, you will have compassion on the strong, right? You'll have compassion on your husband. You'll have compassion on your wife. Kids, it says in, in one place in scripture that w when the gospel really comes in, the hearts of children will turn to their parents and parents to their children. The parents will see their kids who have no responsibilities and are in this area of strength because what do they have to do, right? They have a strong life in that there's nothing required of them. And, 
But, and so parents can feel very self-righteous. So the kids go off to school and they get ridiculed and they don't know how to act and they don't know how to make, they don't know how to stand up to anything and what, and their life is hard in their eyes, but you don't have any compassion on them because what do they have to do, right? And vice versa. The kids come home, you have a hard life. I mean, you have to wake up and take a shower and actually go to school. I mean, it's terrible. And your parents have to figure out how to put food on the table and keep their job and where are we going to live and how are we going to do this? And, and kids feel like, well, right? You see, that's not a lack of compassion for weakness. It's a lack of compassion for strength. One of the places where our hearts tend to be very cold is, to, is toward the people we think are more important than us. And the people who we think are more important than us because of our envy, they need our support. They need our help. They need our care. They need our respect. They need our love. They, they matter too. Don't be self-righteous when people in charge fall. It might have been partly your fault. Right? If we'll get rid of envy, one of the things that'll happen is, is that we will support those that we look to as strong and who we were actually envious of. We'll be able to love them. The second thing is that, um, where am I? This, the second thing is that we'll start to actually realize we enjoy what we're doing. It's only when you stop wanting to be something else that you'll actually accept that the thing, you're, that, the thing that you're really meant for is actually pretty good. Right? As long as I do my job wanting somebody else's job, I'm not going to be able to actually experience the contentment of what I'm doing. And I'm probably not going to be doing the thing that I was meant to do because I'll be always trying to stretch to be something else that I've idealized. You see, the minute you let envy go and you ask God, okay, what do you, what do you want me to be? What is the good, benevolent, sovereign thing you've chosen for me? And you simply accept that. And, and, and you build a dream, not abstractly based on what you think is big, but you create a dream in the story of what God's doing in your life interactively so that the dream emerges. I said in the last service, this is one of my issues with Disney, right? Like, I, I really like some Disney movies, and I cry at the end of Mulan and all that. But, but here's, the, here's the problem with the, the dream culture in Disney is that you create it sort of ex nihilo right out of your head, and you just make up a big dream, and you live for that dream. It's a really stupid way to make a dream, right? The dream that's right for you has to be created interactively in the story of your life. It has to emerge from your life in what God is doing in your redemption, how he's transforming you, what gifts you see him giving you, what passions he's knitted into your heart that he has to, what you're really for. You see, if you don't do that, you'll just create this kind of idealized trajectory and nothing will ever match up with it and you'll just be disappointed. One person out of a million will somehow reach their dreams and then you'll find out that they were secretly unhappy their whole life anyway. Why? Because the idealized dream they created with, even though they achieved it, wasn't the right dream for them. That's not who they, God made them to be, and so they didn't even like it. And so when, when we give up envy, when we give up that sense of inferiority, and we accept that we're part of the body no matter what we are, one, we can care about the people we thought were important that we were envious of, and they need our care. They need our mutual concern. But also we'll realize that if we'll just let us ourselves be what we were meant to be, create a dream in relationship to what God has gifted us in and doing in our life, we're going to be an enormous amount happier. I mean, to put it this way, when the foot stops wanting to be an eye, he actually realizes he really likes walking. Let me tell you a quick story about this. There were these two um, college students a few years back, and but they both loved Jesus. They both wanted to serve Jesus and be like 100% committed to Jesus. And... Um, so one of them, they were both at university, and one of them decided that he was going to be a, a university evangelist. 
He was going to go to all kinds of universities all over the world and country. And he was going to argue for Jesus with easy debate atheists and stuff. And he, kind of, he was reared on stories of, you know, Ravi Zacharias and Bill Craig going and debating and people coming to Jesus in these lecture halls and secular universities and so on. And the other one said, you know, if I'm going to be 100% devoted to Jesus, what I'm going to do, I'm going to go to the darkest, most gospel-less place in the world. And I'm going to plant myself there in all the poverty it requires, and I'm going to lead as many people to Jesus as I can. And so he decided that place was Nepal, the Hindu kingdom of Nepal. He said, I'm going to go there, and I'm going to live there, and I'm going to be a missionary, and I'm going to lead people to Jesus, and I'm going to figure out how to speak Nepali and blah, blah, right? And here's how that story ends. One of them became a pastor, and one of them became an engineer. That's pretty sad, right? That's a pretty sad story. Both sellouts, right? Um, that's my brother and I. Right? And here's why. Because there was a time in our lives where we knew we loved Jesus, and that's pretty much all we knew about ourselves. And so we idealized, what does it mean? What would it mean to be the eye? The eye of the body. What would it mean to be the, the hand? What would it mean to be, and what would it mean to be the, the best? And one of us decided it was one thing, and one of us decided it was something else. But it both came from the same place. And we hadn't lived that story out with God. We hadn't figured out what we were gifted for. We hadn't— Brother's terrible at languages. I don't know what he was thinking he was going to be a missionary in Nepal. I mean, he can't even spell English, you know? He's got a spelling learning disability, right? So—but yet—but yet, right? And I, the last thing I wanted to be was a pastor. I, I thought that that was about the most boring way you could possibly be a Christian in all of creation. Um, but yet, here's the funny thing about that. When I was 20 and I thought, I want to be a university professor, and I want to be one of these traveling evangelists, and I want to I interact with people who can think and who care and who are educated. I want to help them understand, was God doing something in me? Right? He, he was. I ended up in Madison, right? That's kind of odd, isn't it? But not as a professor. You see, but I couldn't have known any of that. And when I was in the South and the Redneck Riviera, I was not thinking, here I've arrived in the intellectual center of the world. And, but, but there was something happening to me in the South that I didn't know I was going to need then, and I didn't know I was coming here. And who would have thought, and if you would have told me you're going to live in Madison, I'd be like, okay, that sounds really interesting, right? But, but why? Because when you're idealizing something and you don't have a dream created from walking with God— then your dream is always abstract. And so the real thing that happens in your life never seems quite right. It's like getting married. You can never marry the person you dreamed you were going to marry. There's no such thing. Right? And your kids, your kids never turn out the way you imagined your kids would turn out. But then you realize your kids in your imagination didn't have any faces. They just had resumes. <laughs> because life is different from that. And when you let envy go— and you build a dream with God in the story of your life as you realize what he's doing in you and with you and through you and where he's placed you and what opportunities— and then the dream comes out of that, A, you might actually live your dream, and two, you'll actually find out that you like it. Let's move on. The second thing is superiority. That is the rejection that comes from pride, the idea, I don't need you, Right? Verses 21 and 22. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, on the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. The word indispensable is very descriptive, isn't it? You cannot dispense with it. 
it is indispensable. One of the words in relationship to an organism would be something that's vital. It means about the same thing as indispensable. Something that's vital. It's part of the vitality or the organism. You get rid of that, you're done, right? I mean, think about that. Have you ever read this passage and thought, what part of the body would I want to be if I was going to be part of the body? And honestly, it's the eye. I mean, I would just rather be the eye or the— I probably wouldn't even be the ear. I mean, the ear's beneath me. I mean, I would be the eye, right? I mean, and now why? Or, you know, my, you might have picked the hand. Well, the hand does a lot of stuff, and it gets to touch, right? Or I'll be the brain. The brain, that's all coming through me, right? I mean, but, I mean, how many people—you know why you don't pick the pancreas? Nobody picks the pancreas, unless you're just trying to be snide. Oh, I picked the pancreas, Pastor Nick. Yeah, that's just because you want to be the guy that raises your hand and say you picked the pancreas. That's all. That's all it is. That means what you really want to be is the mouth. That's all, right? So, here's why. You know why? Because the pancreas is blue-collar. That's why we don't want to be the pancreas. Pancreas does blue-collar work. That's all he does. Bust out insulin. That's all he does. He looks like he's making bumpers at a GM factory. Let's make some more insulin. Hey, guys, you want to make some more insulin today? Let's make some more insulin. Right? They're like a plumber. I'm going to clean out it. What are you going to do? What are you going to do today, honey? I'm going to clean out some drains. Some people just can't keep their hair out of them. Right? But what? That work needs to be done. That work has to be done. That work is vital. People clean houses. That work has to be done. Whether you clean your own house or whether you hire somebody. That work has to be done or people die or you die. I mean, imagine, everybody in Madison just goes, you know what? Cleaning is a waste of time. That's how I feel. (laughs) Cleaning is a waste of time. Why would you clean, right? Just take clothes right out of the washing machine, right? And don't clean— you're just wasting your life, right? When I remember when I was dating my my wife, the guys that I lived with, we we lived out our philosophy. (laughs) And, you know, my girlfriend at that time, now my wife, she came over and cleaned our place. She's like— you are disgusting, and you're all going to die, and you're going to get sick. And it's true. Like, I realized after she cleaned it, it was really nice, and I could breathe easier, and my bed didn't smell bad anymore. And so it was interesting. But you see, the, the point is, is that these things are all vital. I mean, think about it. Who was the most, who was the most blue-collar worker in the body? Well, I mean, probably a lot of them, but the heart, right? I mean, your heart doesn't go, I don't like your attitude, or I want to do something different today. I'm sick of pumping. Let's do something else. Let's, uh, let's, uh, let's do, let's, uh, I want to do the lung thing. Let's breathe. Can we do that? And meanwhile, you're dead. <laughs> right? Or the kidneys. The kidneys are like, well, I'm down here making urine. <laughs> you want to switch? <laughs> but here's the issue, right? Think about this. All of the things that you would normally gra- gravitate toward are all things, actually, that are not vital. I mean, think about, think about this. If you're deaf, right, you can't hear. Have you lost your vitality? You actually haven't, have you? People are extremely functional who are deaf, or even, even blindness. I mean, one of the, if you're like, what's the last thing you'd want to happen to you, right? So somebody would be like, oh, blindness, right? That's, that's really not one of the top ten, right? I mean, you can, you can live, it doesn't take away your vitality. You can live, right? But if you don't have a pancreas, you're going to die, Right? You don't have any kidneys, you're going to die. You need somebody else's, right? You don't have a heart, you're going to die very quickly. And there's a lot of stuff that we don't think about at all that you have to have to live. Like, you just, just, we don't have to take away your heart, just take away your carotid artery. You're still dead. You're just as dead. Right? I mean, or think about being an amputee. I mean, I didn't realize this until I actually had a child that was physically disabled. My third child, Jude, has a, has a pretty significant physical disability. 
He's just the same as any other kid. He runs around, throws stuff, punches me in the face. I mean, he's just, I mean, it's just, but is, is he significantly disabled? Absolutely. But it doesn't take away his vitality. And you see, what Paul is saying is there is a, there's an ignorance that comes from pride. There is a culpable stupidity that pride will always produce. Everybody knows the eye is better than the heart, right? Everybody knows this is important. And what Paul says is actually that's, that's really dumb. But you see, pride makes you dumb. Pride takes really intelligent people and convinces them that really foolish things are true. Because they're, because what they're trying to justify is not the truth. What they're trying to justify is themselves. And the truth or fact are handmaidens for self-justification. Once the truth becomes a handmaiden for our self-justification, what can't be done with it? And how foolish will we end up being? Because the thing that we're justifying is a pretty foolish thing. And so when it comes to the issue of superiority, we need to recognize this basic point. You need to go around presuming the vital importance of everything you run into in the body of Christ. You cannot afford to think any part of the body isn't vital. There's this, there's this funny story about— it actually comes out of the Scopes trial, but, um, but in, the, in the turn of the 20th century, um, in the medical profession, it was believed by many physicians that there were 180 vestigial organs in the human body. That is, um, organs that were the vestiges of evolution but didn't have any uses anymore. 180 of them. One of them was the pituitary gland. Right? And that's not to say they were stupid. It's just that was, the, that was the state of medical knowledge at that time based on the paradigms they were working out of and so on. And so they really thought these 180 things weren't vital. But here's the thing about them. They were vital. They, they were really important things. We, they just didn't understand what they did yet. And, and here's the thing. You can, we can laugh at that, right? Oh, 180 messages. That's funny. Oh, that's exactly how we live, right? As Christians. It's exactly how you and I live. We walk through this church, and we really think that all these people that, that can't do stuff, or, or ourselves, or other people, we just, we think that they're essentially vestigial organs. That they're, they're, they're part of the body, but you don't really need them. At best, they're like an appendix. It might help fight disease in certain situations, but you just soon have to have it cut out, and if they would just leave, it would be all the better. But the truth is, is that there, there are no vestigial organs in the body of the church. They're all vital. God has apportioned them exactly the way he wanted them to be, Scripture says. Exactly the way he wanted them to be. And so, if the motivation and inferiority is that you don't believe in God's benevolence and providence for you— in superiority, what you really don't believe is God's benevolence and providence for everybody else. You really believe that God has been really good to you because you're fantastic. But you don't believe in God's real benevolence, that he's really, truly been generous exactly the way he wants to be with everybody else. And therefore, their gifts can be inferior when, in fact, they're vital. And you actually might be the most extraneous person. I mean, honestly, if we had to get rid of some people, who should we really get rid of? In the church. Right? Who are, who are some of the most vital people? Is it me? Well, one of, the, one of the things the people we don't think about is there are a group of people in this church that are very financially generous. Right? You don't, you don't know who they are. I don't know who they are. 
right? I don't look at that stuff. I don't want to know it. But they're here. They give a lot more percentage-wise than everybody else. They're very generous, and sacrificially so. Their lifestyle changes because of what they give. They're not just rich. We don't know who they are. They're sitting here among us. They're absolutely vital to the ministries that we do for our children, for each other. But nobody would even know they exist. They wouldn't even know—you wouldn't even know they were a vestigial organ, much less that they were vital. But they are vital, Right? There are people with gifts of hospitality, including like one of our one of our interns, Tina. Her one of her biggest spiritual gifts is just including people. She just likes to talk to people, wants to get them where they need to go. Show, just it shows that she's interested, right? There was a girl just before the service who's trying to find one of the rooms in the back upstairs. We have like these secret hidden stairwells that lead to secret rooms because of the way we we and and this girl she's she's been here for a year but she's never gone back there she didn't know where it was and so I'm taking her right I mean I have this spiritual gift of being disinterested in people okay like so I, and I'm I was supposed to be on stage talking while I was taking her over there and so I ran into one of our interns and said hey can you take her there and she's like oh yeah I'd love to. It's just, it's hospitality needed to be offered. Now, can I do hospitality? Is hospitality a discipline? Absolutely. And I can do hospitality, and so should you. But is it better when Tina does it? Yeah, it's better. When I take them someplace, they get where they need to go. When Tina takes them someplace, they get where they need to go, and they're two inches taller when they get there. And that's vital. I'm not as vital as you. We could just go on the internet and get a video of some good sermon and put it up every Sunday. You don't need me. But we need some of these other people. And we, ha- and you, and we have to believe that. You've got to believe that God is not just benevolent and providential for you. You've got to believe that God is equally benevolent and providential for all who come to Christ and believe in him and seek what gifts he has to give them and how he wants to use them. Or you'll cut out your heart to worship your eye. So let's conclude this way with the two applications of this passage. If we recognize that our identity is that we are one body, that God has created, created the organism that is the perfect picture of a united and diverse identity, And if we realize that if we don't live that out, if we let inferiority or superiority break that unified but diverse and varied creature that Christ is trying to build in us through his Holy Spirit, that it will create this death-bringing, potential-destroying autoimmune disease to the very body of Christ. We can't do that. That's not who we are. That's not what we were made to be, right? And if we realize that there was, this, is the, that this autoimmune disease is a result of pride. It's a result of pride. And if we realize, spiritually speaking, that pride is always our greatest enemy and humility always our greatest friend, and what produces humility and the self-forgetfulness that comes from humility is the truth. The truth of the gospel. That Christ is unified. He has made a unified body. He has baptized us all into one spirit and given us one resource personal resource, God himself to drink from and to live within us, and that we are all united by that. That will change the way we see and look at things. It will cause us to realize how small we are, and it will cause us to be self-forgetful. And when that self-forgetfulness comes, there are two things that will naturally happen. They will just—you don't even have to be taught. They will just come out of you. And one of them is mutual concern. 
right? He says as he's concluding, he says, there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now we are the body of Christ and each one of you is part of it, right? You see, he gets to the end and he says, listen, if you understand this, what's going to happen? What's going to happen is you're going to have compassion. You're going to care. You're, you're actually going to, because you're going you're gonna to quit, you, we're going to quit lo- using all of our emotional energy caring about ourselves, right? Human beings are wired to care, right? We're, we're wired to be passionate. The thing we find the most interesting is ourselves. And so we tend to be wildly passionate about ourselves, and that doesn't leave a lot of passion for everybody else or for God. But when the truth comes in, and there's a self-forgetfulness that comes when inferiority and superiority is broken down, yet we're still the kind of creature that is passionate about something, what fills the void? Well, the things that should have been there in the first place. God in his greatness and his compassion and love for everybody around us. And so mutual concern is produced by that. You actually hear what's happening to other people. You actually care. And the second thing is an earnest desire for the gifts talked about in these passages. Now, think about how this passage ends. And in the church, God has appointed, first of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then workers of miracles, also those having gifts of healing, those able to help others, those with gifts of administration, those speaking in different kinds of tongues, right? Which kind of sounds like the opposite of what he's been doing, right? We're all the same. We're all, no, we're, you know, we're all, okay, now here's the order, right? But then, then what does he do? He goes into these rhetorical questions. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? You see, the idea is, the answer for all those questions is, of course not, right? No, not everybody's an apostle. No, not everybody's a teacher. No, not everybody's a... And then he gets in, but eagerly desire the greater gifts. So what's the point there? You see, what he's saying is, is, you see, God appoints everybody exactly the way he wants to. Appoints apostles. Appoints prophets. He appoints teachers. He points all these things. He does exactly the way he wants to do it. But not everybody has any particular gift. And so if you will accept that God has a very specific desire and plan for you in relationship to spiritual gifts, what is the only reasonable action on your part if you don't know what they are? You don't know his divine will. Well, see, the only reasonable action is for you to desire them all. Recognizing you won't receive them all, but you'll end up seeking the one he actually wants to give you, and you'll receive it. And it it no longer functions based on your pride or envy of which one you want, or which one you don't want, right? It's like the gift that everybody speaks highly of, but nobody wants, the gift of administration, right? Um, But yet, or, you know, the, the gift that some people want or don't want because it's weird, speaking in tongues, right? Some people find that really intriguing, some people find that really off-putting. Well, here's the thing. When you realize that what you think and want doesn't matter, and when you realize God has a chosen set of gifts and way he wants to give to you and minister in your life and and work through you through mutual concern and the empowerments he's given you to build up the church and other people, when you realize that, you will realize that you're not picking after all. God appoints the people he wants to appoint to exactly what he wants to appoint them to. Not everybody has all of them, so all that's left for you is to just seek them all, recognizing you won't receive them all, but you will receive what he wants to give you, and you will receive exactly what he wants to give you. And if you realize you 
aren't here for you to be envious or superior, but you exist for the glory of God, to be part of the unity of Christ, baptized in the Spirit, built into the organism of the body of Christ, to build everybody up into maturity, and to reach the world with the redemptive purposes of Christ, you will realize that it was a very small ambition to begin with to think that you were going to be picking your gifts. Right? And so we'll seek them all, knowing that we won't receive them all, but we will receive what he, in his real benevolence, and good providence intends for us. And when he does that with each one of us, he will build an organism full of systems and cells and body parts that work together that are free from the autoimmune diseases that destroy us through pride. And we will become that unified people, that one body, growing up into what Paul says in Ephesians 4, growing up and experiencing what he calls the full measure of Christ. And you will like that. Let's pray. Father, will you help us to see the truth, whether we tend to be wallowers in in the inferiority of envy, or whether we tend to be superior in our pride, or whether we're the kind of people like most who are constantly flopping back and forth, will you give us the gift of self-forgetfulness that comes from a humility that sees you as the true one, you as the benevolent giver, you as the generous one, you as the good providential ruler of all things, you as the one who knits together your body, you as the one who gives the gifts exactly as you want to, and would you free in us, through that, the mutual concern that is love and make us people who are actually living out the spirituality you invented, loving people in accord with the truth of the gospel. And would you make us the kind of people who, who would earnestly seek all the gifts that you would give, recognizing that you will give us exactly the ones you want and that you will make us a vital part of your body whichever part we end up being. Help us to trust you in that. And help us to see that we can trust you by looking to Jesus, the one, the trustworthy one, the one who when we look to him, we feel good, we feel good about trusting. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.